like me, many of you are moved when you hear the heroic stories of the Christian martyrs of the faith. We read those stories, modern day or ones from the past, and we are moved in profound ways when we are encountered by these stories of people who held fast to their uh, faith in the most cruel of circumstances as there are those who want them to recant their faith and renounce their faith or face imminent martyrdom, death for their faith in Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the story of a second century martyr, a young Christian woman, mother, 22-year-old by the name of Perpetua. She came to faith in Jesus Christ at an early age as a young mother, and was courageous in her faith. And her father was a, a very important and wealthy magistrate in Carthage. And uh, he would plead with her. Knowing what would happen to her if she did not renounce her faith. He would plead with her to deny her faith in Jesus Christ. And return to her pagan faith. But she would not. Eventually the authorities caught up with her. And a young servant girl in her home had also come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they... They dragged her away to prison where she would face the cruel punishment that Christians faced in that time. The gladiator games in honor of emperor um, uh, service was about to take place. And uh, she was dragged into the arena together with many Christians where they would be trampled and mauled by wild animals. She would not recant her faith. She would not deny her faith. Even as she was entering the arena, her and the other Christians would would be singing hymns to the Lord. And they would be calling people to repent and to turn to Jesus Christ, fearless in the face of what was about to take place. The wild animals were released and they were trampled and she was trampled and Christians were gored and mauled to death. And somehow she survived. So they summoned a gladiator to go drive a sword through her. As that gladiator approached and those eyewitnesses who saw this, she could see the hesitancy in this young man's eyes. He he didn't want to do it. But she didn't fear death. She didn't fear what was about to happen. She grabbed the sword and guided it to her throat so that he could thrust it through her and send her to glory. We hear those stories and we go, how can that be? What is it that would cause them to be willing to die for their faith in this way? What is it that they had that maybe we feel we don't have or we don't possess when we think about what if that, if they came for me? What if I was called to deny my faith in Jesus Christ or face some harsh torture or or punishment or death? How would I respond well, today's passage that we started to look at last week contains the reason for this courageous and glorious faith that these martyrs have held to Perpetua and so many before her and the millions after her and the many today who hold to their faith in Jesus Christ in the face of horrific persecution. Let's turn to the word of the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read once again verses 8 through 14. And today we're going to concentrate 
on verses 9 and 10. Hear the words of the Lord. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. These are the words of the Lord. I'm going to just take a few brief moments to recount what we looked at last week. We spoke of last week in this passage the threefold duty we have to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the commands, the charges that Paul gives to Timothy in these moments. The first being that he is to take a courageous stand for the gospel. He is to be unashamed of the gospel, both of its message and unashamed of its messenger, in this case, Paul, he says, don't even be ashamed of me, his prisoner. And that charge, that command, that exhortation is there because we're tempted to be ashamed, maybe of Christ or of his words or, or of his people, of the harsh things the gospel says, of the harsh things that Jesus taught. And we might be tempted to water those things down or kind of leave them out of our gospel proclamation or presentation. But Paul says to Timothy, your duty to the gospel is to not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's the testimony of Christ. It's his testimony. It's not our testimony. Though our testimony has something to do with us, but in what it has to do with us, it's it's what Christ has done for us and what Christ has done in us. Sometimes when we tell people to tell their testimony, they spend a lot of time talking about themselves. And they talk about their past like it was the most amazing thing. And then they take two seconds to say, but one day I believed in Jesus Christ. And now my life is better. This is the testimony of Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we're to be unashamed of. Which is why Paul declared that it was, that it was the gospel that was the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So he's to courageously take a stand for the gospel. But not only that, he's also... In his duty of the gospel to share in suffering for the gospel. Because suffering is expected if you're faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The faithful proclamation of the gospel and suffering for the gospel go hand in hand. And now it's different for us here in the West. Only for this short season that we're in. But at some point it's going to get really heated for us. But we know right now in other parts of the world. To follow Jesus. To call yourself a follower of Christ. To proclaim the gospel. 
incurs the ire and the wrath of those who oppose the message and the messenger and ultimately our Lord and Savior. You're going to share in suffering for the gospel. We need to embrace that in our duty to the gospel. And lastly, he was to faithfully keep the gospel in two ways that Paul encourages Timothy there that he was to do that is to, first of all, he has to follow the pattern of the sound words. Again, it's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his words. It's his teaching. The pattern is the pattern that Paul instructed Timothy in. And where did he get that pattern from? Well, he got that from the Lord himself. And Timothy is not to deviate from that pattern. He's to follow that specific pattern. And he's to guard, he's to keep the good deposit that was entrusted to him. As the gospel was entrusted to Paul by Christ Jesus, now Paul is entrusting Timothy with that good deposit. The good treasure, the precious treasure that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Timothy is to guard it, keep it, preserve it. And he's to do that by faithfully following it and proclaiming it. And that's not just the duty for Timothy or the duty for an elder of a church or a pastor or a preacher. It is for every single follower of Jesus Christ. It is our duty to his gospel. It's both a serious weight and responsibility upon those who lead in the church. And it's a serious weight and responsibility on every follower, every believer. And these things can only be done. Fulfilling any of these duties for the gospel can only be done by the power of God through the gospel. By the power of God through the indwelling spirit of grace that is in us. We do it by his power. And now what we find in these kind of two verses here sandwiched between these duties to the gospel. We find Paul taking a moment to now amplify the glory of the gospel. And he's amplifying it, he's blowing it up, he's magnifying it so that, can, so that Timothy can be reminded of and motivated by that which he is not to be ashamed of. That which he is to share in suffering for and that which he is to faithfully keep and proclaim. The gospel, the good news of God's comprehensive saving work through Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is saying to Timothy, it is worth it all. It is worth the suffering. It is worth following. It is worth guarding and safekeeping. It's worth it all. The gospel is the grounds of any confidence and courage that you or I need to fulfill our duty to the gospel. And any duty we have to the gospel, any duty is because of what God has graciously done for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul is doing in giving these weighty charges and commands to Timothy with these two verses, he's also providing the support that Timothy needs in order to do those things. All of Paul's letters, we've talked about this in the past, all of Paul's letters contain indicatives and imperatives. In fact, all of the apostolic letters contain indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives are statements of truth, statements of fact. Anything that Paul writes when he talks about our position in Christ or who we are in Christ or our identity in Christ or what we have in Christ are the indicatives. The imperatives are the commands, the charges. Do this, do that. Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words. Timothy, guard the good deposit 
entrusted to you. Those are the imperatives. So the indicatives describe who we are in Christ. The imperatives describe what we do for Christ. Indicatives define our new identity and reality in Christ. And imperatives define our responsibilities to Christ and our responsibilities to one another. And our obedience to Christ flows from our relationship with Christ. Flows out from our identity in Christ Jesus. We don't have a relationship with Jesus because we obey. But because we have a relationship with Jesus, we obey. Our obedience flows out of the renewed heart, the regenerated life that we have in Christ Jesus. And so in the apostolic writings, you'll find this indicative imperative framework. It's, it's in every letter. It's in every writing and in every instruction to believers and to the church of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the apostolic writers front load all of the indicatives. A lot of times in Paul's letters, what you find, he's telling you a lot of what Christ Jesus has done for you. Of who you are in Christ, your position in Christ Jesus. All of the blessings and benefits of the gospel. And then he says, in light of those things, here's what you got to do. Here's what you need to do, right? Out of this new relationship, this is the motivation for all of these commands. All of the indicatives they wrote. And at other times, the duties and responsibilities and commands, they come first. And then later comes the explanation of how this new relationship Uh, with God through Christ enables us to obey, enables us to follow the command. And that's what's happening in this passage here. Why is that important? It's important so we don't get the gospel wrong. It's important so that we don't have a wrong motivation to our obedience. We get this wrong when we think, when we read these commands and go, Oh, I have to do these things in order to be in that right relationship with God. I have to do these things in order to have the grace of God. I have to do these things in order to have forgiveness. I have to do these things in order to be blessed and and favored and have the righteousness that God says I'm to have. Don't get it twisted. Don't get it backwards. This is why all the apostolic writers spend so much time magnifying the gospel, magnifying the work of Jesus Christ. So you see that as the fuel and motivation. You do it out of those gospel realities, out of that relationship with Jesus Christ, out of the work that Christ has done for us. So in these short phrases, that's what Paul is doing here. He is reminding Timothy of the glorious gospel that will motivate his duties to the gospel. There is no reason for Timothy to be ashamed of the message or the messengers. There's no reason for him to fear what man can do so he can share in suffering for the gospel. He can share in all of that because all that God has done for him. Timothy, look at what Jesus has done for you. Look how you have been saved. Look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the fuel and motivation that Timothy needs and you and I need. To fulfill our duties to the gospel. So let's look at verse 9 and 10 here. This short sketch of some of the main features of the gospel message that Paul is amplifying. That Paul is just kind of throwing them up like on a projection screen for for Timothy to, to gaze at, to evaluate, to believe, to hold on to. Now it's important to note that this is not a complete statement of the gospel. There's a lot that Paul leaves out about the gospel in these two verses. For instance, Paul doesn't mention anything here uh, about the atonement. 
He doesn't mention anything here about the cross or the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us. No mention here about the wrath of God that's been averted because Jesus took it upon himself or the removal of our guilt and sin by the blood of Jesus. And there's a lot of things that Paul doesn't mention here because his purpose here is not to fully expound all of the glorious truths of the gospel message like he does in, for instance, Romans. You read Romans and it's like, whoa, the gospel's big. The gospel's huge. Paul's chief aim is to provide the necessary motivation for our duty to the gospel. It's the gospel's resourcefulness that is in view here. That's the goal. It is the gospel that motivates us to live in this world without fear. Without fear of what man can do to us. Isn't that what Timothy needed to hear? Remember where Timothy was? He's leading in Ephesus, a church where he's facing great opposition from false teachers and those teaching uh, aberrations and distortions of the gospel, a different doctrine. They were those that were opposing him because they thought of him as young and inexperienced. They were opposing him because he was Paul's apostolic delegate. And they thought that Paul wasn't really an apostle because Paul was in chains now. Paul was in prison. If he really was an apostle, he wouldn't be there. He'd be thriving. He'd be rich. He'd be flourishing. He'd be a multimillionaire. He'd be living in the nicest villa, traveling the world. But, but, but he's in chains. He's in prison. He can't be an apostle of the Lord. Timothy is facing great opposition, and there would be a temptation for him to fear, to be ashamed, to not want to enter into the suffering that was his duty to the gospel Because of fear of man. So this is why Paul is motivating him with this. The reason that Timothy and all Christians can trust and depend on God's power. Is because it is inseparable from the grace of God revealed in the gospel. This is linked now in these two short verses that we are going to look at here. William Barclay in his commentary on the pastorals writes... There are a few passages in the New Testament which have in them and behind them such a sense of the sheer grandeur of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope you see that as we go through those two verses today. It's remarkable how Paul's gospel message, his gospel teaching, had not changed from his earliest letters like Thessalonians and Galatians and Corinthians To his last letter here in 2 Timothy. It's the same message. He didn't deviate from the pattern of the sound words. He's an apostle of the Lord. He knew his job. He had one job. As the memes go. And he discharged that faithfully. He kept to it. He held to it. There's no different message in 2 Timothy than there was in his earliest letters, like First and Second Thessalonians. His letter to the Romans in the latter part of the 50s. It's the same gospel message. Through many trials, adversity, hardships, imprisonments, the message was consistent. He knew he had no liberty to alter the content of the message. And neither do we. Neither does any so-called preacher of the word of God have a right 
to change this message in any way, shape, or form. To substitute its content, to add to it, or to subtract to it. Paul knew his responsibility. So let's begin to look at three aspects of this glorious gospel of grace in these short two verses. And the first we'll look at is the substance of our salvation. The first declaration about this glorious gospel message that Paul makes when he tells them to share in suffering by the power of God. Why? Why is he to do that? Because God saved us. God who saved us. And secondly, he declares that it is God who called us to a holy calling. God saved us. God called us to a holy calling. If you were to ask someone to describe what does salvation mean? What what does salvation encompass? I would say the overwhelming majority would say, well, Christ died to forgive my sins. Salvation is about the forgiveness of sins. And praise God, it is that. But it is much more than that. It is that and so much more. John Stott in his commentary on the pastorals writes this. You'll see it on screen. Salvation is a majestic word. Denoting that comprehensive purpose of God. By which he justifies, sanctifies and glorifies his people. First, pardoning our offenses and accepting us as righteous in his sight through Christ. Then progressively transforming us by his spirit into the image of his son. Until finally we become like Christ in heaven with new bodies in a new world. The gospel message is robust. The gospel message is about the comprehensive plan of what it is that God does in saving us. Yes, it's the forgiveness of sins, but it is much more. It is much more. And it's beyond the scope of Paul's purpose and intent in encouraging and motivating Timothy with these verses. And when he uses that word salvation, right, it's it's all of the spiritual blessings that flow to the believer in salvation. It's all of the benefits that every believer has as the work of Christ is applied to them. Salvation is all of that. And notice here, he says there, who... What he tells him here, by the power of God who saved us. That's in the past tense, isn't it? Who saved us. He's speaking of the reality of salvation as an event, an experience that Timothy has already attained, that is already his. Our deliverance from sin and death, our forgiveness of sin, our adoption into the family of God, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Everything, everything that salvation implies is something that you and I in Christ already have and already enjoy. Praise God for that. We have been saved. So Timothy can share in suffering for the gospel and endure every opposition relying on God's assistance and power Because God has already saved him. It's done. Timothy, what do you have to fear? Church, what do you have to fear? He has saved us. He has saved us. We don't have to hope that God saves us. We don't have to try to do these things and fulfill our duties to the gospel in the hopes that he'll save us. God has saved us. It's done. We don't have to shrink back in fear. 
When, when God's message and God's messengers are opposed by the world, because he's already saved us. He's already saved us. And I want you to think of the great confidence this apostle of the Lord has as he's rotting in a dungeon, writing this encouragement to Timothy. He's there for the cause of Christ, for the sake of Christ and the gospel, awaiting his execution. He knows it's coming. And here he has this great confidence in Christ, in God, because he is saved. And and his confidence is that when his head is separated from his body, he will have lost nothing of what he already had. God has saved him. No Roman executioner is going to undo the salvation that is already his. No threat of death could dislodge him from the unshakable confidence he has in his salvation. Timothy, do not be ashamed. Share in the suffering. Look, you've been saved. God has saved you. But not only that, he's called you to a holy calling. You've not just been saved from something, you've been saved for something. You've not just been saved from a life of sin, you've been saved to a life of holiness. A life of godliness. We've been called to a holy calling. Some of your translations render it called to a holy life. God, who is holy, has saved us to be holy like he is. We've received that calling. We've been called to be saints. I've said this before. I know we don't think about that way, but Scripture calls us saints. The apostles call the saints, the church, the saints of the living God. He writes that in 1 Corinthians 1-2 in his greeting to the church at Corinth. That you're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word saints in the Greek, hagios, means holy ones. We are right now, positionally, that's the indicative, holy ones before the Lord. Call to holiness. Call to be holy as he is holy. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Salvation entails God calling us to himself, calling us out of the world, and calling us to a new way of living in close relationship with him. And we're already holy because in Christ we've been made holy. In Christ we've been made holy. Righteous. Praise God for that. We are saints. But that's true positionally. We're also being made holy now. It is both a past reality and a present reality that will be ongoing until our future glorification. We are becoming holy through the ongoing sanctifying work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. And that sanctifying work is to conform us to Christ, to grow us in holiness and godliness. We are presently being saved. Now, we know this, but if you don't know this, when the gospel writers, the apostolic writers speak of salvation, they speak of it in three tenses, past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. In the past, like we just looked at, God saved us. We're, we have been saved. Ephesians chapter 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved. It's already happened. You have already been justified. Christ's righteousness has already been imputed to you. God has already declared you holy as Christ is holy. 
Why? Because Christ satisfied all of the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf in our place. It's his active obedience, right, in, in, in obeying God's law, in his perfect obedience to the Father, that you and I now can have his righteousness granted to us. And we have already been adopted into the family of God. We're not going to be his children. We already are his children. You're already his. You belong to the family of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. We'll receive all of the things that we are to inherit in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we've already been saved. We have been saved. Past tense. But it's also a present salvation as, as well. We are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That verb tense there is a present action with ongoing effects or a continuing action. Salvation is ongoing in the believer's life through the process of sanctification. That is the work of the indwelling spirit of grace. Doing the work of Christ, applying the work of Christ to us to affect change in our lives so that we conform more and more to the image of Christ. This is comfort for us. Because we might look at our life now and go, ain't a lot of holiness there. We're being made holy. We are already holy, but we're being made holy. We're growing in the grace of God. We are overcoming sin. We are growing in godliness. And through this work of the spirit of sanctification in our life, we gain confidence and assurance that we will persevere to the end. We have been saved. We're being saved. But then there's the future reality. We will be saved. We will be saved. There is a future glory that you and I are going to experience concerning salvation. And that's called glorification. We will be glorified at the return of Christ. There we will be raised incorruptible. We will receive incorruptible bodies and live in the new heavens and the new earth before the presence of our God and Savior forever and ever. Free from the presence of sin and evil that plagues us now in our present salvation. I love how 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, the apostle of the Lord, captures all three of these realities of salvation when he writes in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 5 to 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. There's the past tense. We have been saved. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance. When will we receive that inheritance? In our future salvation, our future glorification. That is imperishable, undefiled, Kept in heaven for you, look at verse 5, who by God's power are what? Now being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All past, present, and future salvation is there. Can you praise God that he has saved us, is saving us, and will save us for the glory of God? That's the substance of salvation. He has saved us and he's called us to to holiness. Now let's look at the source of our salvation. Because now he's going to write about how that salvation and calling to a holy life has come about. And he's going to state it both negatively and positively. Negatively, he says that this salvation and this calling to a holy life or a calling to holiness is not because of our works. It's not because of our works. 
We are not saved, nor are we called, because of anything we have done. Salvation is in no way conditioned upon any good works we have done or we think we have done. We're not forgiven. We're not made righteous. We're not made holy. We're not freed from sin's power because of something we have done or something we will do. No amount of sheer human work or exertion or personal achievements or self-righteousness is going to tip the balance in heaven's courtroom in our favor. Your righteousness, any righteousness we think we have apart from Christ is worthless. Cannot save you, will not save you. And the apostolic writers list this so many different ways and say it in so many different ways. Let me give you four quick ones here. Uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 9 that God's purpose of election does not depend on human will or exertion. That's Romans 9.16. Ephesians 2.9, a very familiar verse to us, and we'll read it again in a few moments, but he writes that we're not saved by works. Galatians 2.16, no one is justified by the works of the law. Titus 3.5 tells us that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. We are not saved by works. Any works. We're not saved by anything in us that God would look at and go, man, that, that makes them stand apart. That makes me really like them. I think I'll save them. Look at that good deed. Oh, look how much they give. Oh, look how much they pray. Oh, look how much Bible reading they do. Oh, look how much church attendance they have. Oh, look how they help that old lady across the street. There's nothing in us. All our righteousness, God's word says, is as filthy rags. Paul, in Philippians, he goes on a little rant, saying, here's how I used to see myself. Here's how I used to think of myself. Man, I was this, I was that. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, man. I was a son of Abraham. I was perfect concerning the law, blameless, above reproach, zealous for God. And what does he say? I count all of that now as dung, poop, garbage. It's worthless. There's nothing in me, nothing in me that would, that would be a precondition for God electing me, saving me, giving me Christ's righteousness, nothing at all. So I ask you, what are you trusting in for your salvation? What are you trusting in that's going to get you across the line? What do you trust in for for God to look upon you with favor and save you? Your good deeds? Your generosity? That you're a kind person? That you're a compassionate person? That you attend church? That your parents are Christian? None of those things can save you. Not a one of them. Brothers and sisters, beloved, do not screw this up. Don't twist this thing. Otherwise, the gospel cannot be our motivation. It cannot be the fuel for godliness. It cannot be the the fuel for perseverance in the face of opposition and suffering for Christ and his gospel. The moment we stand and go, there's something in me. That's going to get me there. There's something I do for God. Because Paul didn't say, hey, you not being ashamed of the gospel is what's going to get you there. 
Paul doesn't say sharing and suffering for the gospel is what saves you. Not even your following of the pattern of the sound words or keeping and guarding the good deposit is what saves you. We are not saved by works. He doesn't save us and call us to a holy calling because of our works. Here is why the good news is the good news. Here's how he states it positively now. We're saved. How? We're called to a holy life. How? Because of his own purpose and grace. This is why the good news is exceedingly good news. The unequivocal declaration of Scripture is that it is God alone who saves by his sheer grace alone and nothing else. Grace plus nothing. Grace plus nothing. He is salvation's source. God's own purpose and God's own grace. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, God's own purpose means that it is God who determined to save us. He purposed it. We say this all the time. Salvation was not an accidental plan, was not a responsive plan, a reactionary plan to man's sin. God didn't. After the fall, go, what do we do now? Man really screwed this up. Woman really screwed this up. Ah, how do we save them? He planned and purposed salvation by his own will. When? Before the ages began. Before you and I could do any good works that we might think are good works... Before we were born, before time even began, God purposed to save for himself a people by grace alone through Christ alone. That's what he did. It's a gracious act, not an arbitrary one. A gracious act by a loving God before any of this was made, he determined to save and to call. God determined. He's the source of our salvation. That means the source of our salvation traces way back before time began. In eternity past. Where God determined to elect for himself a people he would save through the giving of his son. Through a grace. Predestining them unto salvation and eternal life. This was no arbitrary plan of God. This was purposed and planned by God before any of this was. That blows my mind. God's purpose of salvation was his plan to lavish his grace upon those who did not deserve it. Who could not merit it. Who could not earn it. Who could not perform any work in time that would cause God to look upon them with saving grace. God's purpose of election is a mystery. It's a mystery. We cannot fathom or comprehend it. It is a difficult doctrine. It is a complex doctrine, but it is a biblical doctrine. So we look at these passages and we they're there for us to marvel at God. To be amazed that God would save wretched sinners like us who could never earn this. There's nothing good in you or deserving of God's salvation. This is where a lot of 
Christian distinctives get it wrong. They add works to grace. Once you add works to grace, it ceases to be the gospel of grace. It nullifies what scripture teaches regarding the purpose and plan of God before anything was. We do not know the secret thoughts or decisions in the mind and will of God. You're not God. Anyone hear God? If you raise your hand, we have to take you outside and stone you. That's the law, right? There's some nice rocks out front too. We don't know that. Here's what we know. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Again, a familiar passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This not your own doing. It is what? A gift. Salvation's a gift, brothers and sisters. It's a gift, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's grace, not works. And you get grace, and you get saved, and you are saved unto good works. So, briefly, we cannot be saved by any good works. We had already done, because we had not done any good works until we were called by the grace of God. Okay? That's getting the cart before the horse. That's not what Scripture teaches. We cannot be saved on the basis of some foreseen good works, because good works are the fruit of of our calling, not the root of our calling. Good works is the fruit of saving grace and faith, not the root of it, not the grounds of it. Okay? So we couldn't be saved by works. We can't be saved by works or you and I would have grounds of boasting before God. And what do we know from Scripture? There is no boasting here. No one can boast. If you add something to grace, then you have room to boast before God. I did. Look what I did, God. We have none of that. None of that. God has repeatedly expressed through his word that any human work cannot induce him to confer upon us his electing and converting grace. We're saved by grace alone. So who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? God and God alone. Praise God for that. I'm going to read a lengthier passage that touches on these themes. But I I want you to see these very things that Paul is talking about in these two verses, these two short verses uh, in Ephesians chapter 1. Looking at God's purpose in Christ Jesus. Notice the phrases that it refers to there of who's doing these things and when these things happened and when these things were done. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. When were you chosen in Him? Before anything was, before the ages began, before the foundation of the world. That we should be what? Holy and blameless before Him. Same thing He's saying there. Been called to a holy calling. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. What? To be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Look here. According to the purpose of man's will. His will. According to the purpose of His will. His purpose and grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Look again. According to the riches of his grace. It's his grace. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose. Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. That's the next verse we're going to look at. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined. Look again. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise to the praise of his glory. Look at all those phrases. It's according to his purpose. According to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. It's God. It's God. It's God. Salvation is all of God. Grace is all of God. All of it from beginning to end. You're saved by grace. You're being saved by grace. You will be saved by grace. You start by grace, you finish by grace. You praise God for that. You don't start by grace and finish it by works. You don't start by grace and now through your works, you're being saved. Start by grace, you continue by grace. You'll make it all the way to the end by grace. You'll be glorified and before the presence of God by grace alone. Praise God. Praise God. Of this high mystery of the doctrine of election and predestination, our confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, in chapter 3 of God's decree, paragraph 7 states this. And I want you to see this because this doctrine, though it's difficult and complex, it is immensely practical. It has had so many benefits for our Christian faith. The doctrine in the confession of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care so that those heeding the will of God revealed in his word and obeying him may be assured of their eternal election by the certainty of their effectual calling. In this way, this doctrine will give reasons, look, for praise, reverence, admiration of God, as well as humility, diligence, and rich comfort to all who sincerely obey the gospel. See, to know that God sovereignly purposed to lavish His grace upon us before the foundation of the world, before anything was made, what does that do but engender in us a deep humility? Because there's nothing in you to brag about. There's nothing in you to boast about. There's nothing in you to say, I get some of this credit, God. And it causes us to overflow with gratitude for the grace Undeserved grace of God shown to us in Christ Jesus. It humbles us to the ground. It brings comfort. It brings assurance to our hearts. Because I know to make it to the end is not a white knuckling by the seat of my pants, gritting my teeth, hoping I make it. How many are languishing in their faith right now because they think, oh yeah, I was saved by grace, but now it's my works that keep me to the end. There's no assurance There's fear, there's guilt, there's shame. Every time they sin, they feel like they're, you know, one day they're in salvation and the next moment they're out of salvation. That was many years of my Christian faith and walk of a twisted gospel of grace plus works. Where I had to respond to every altar call because I thought I was unsaved because I screwed up again. And every time the altar was open, I was there again getting saved again. I didn't lose my salvation, I just didn't know the gospel. 
But I had no assurance. I had no certainty. Makes it incredibly hard to be motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ this way. We need to know that. This brings peace and assurance. God has left nothing to chance. God has left nothing to chance, brothers and sisters. Our salvation, our eternal security does not depend on us, but on God's own purpose and grace. You know this. If God has decreed it, you think you're going to thwart his decree? If God has willed and purposed something, do you think you're going to unpurpose it and unwill it? We are not that powerful. We're not. The other thing I love about this statement of this purpose and grace before the ages began, it gives me again confidence of this gospel. This was not a new gospel message in the first century. This gospel message was written before the foundation of the world. This is what was entrusted to the apostolic writers. The old from eternity past gospel message what God had purposed to do in and through Christ Jesus for his glory and his glory alone to showcase the beauty and excellency and supremacy of Jesus Christ. Man, that gives me confidence with this message. This isn't a new thing. This is a very old thing. It's the oldest thing that there is out there. Lastly, let's look at the setting of our salvation. The salvation God purposed before time was brought into time at Christ's first appearing. Our, God's salvation, our salvation is grounded firmly upon the historical work performed by Christ in time. Though when was it purposed? Before time. Before time. The grace purpose to be given was eternal and secret, but now he's talking about the appearance and manifestation of that grace that is historic and public. Christ showed up on the scene. That purpose and grace from eternity past and the covenant of redemption between the Father and Son is now here, is now present, is now fully unveiled, disclosed, and manifested to the world through the gospel message. Through his incarnation, that eternal decree and purpose was brought into time and completed in time. Though it was completed before time. I know, isn't that crazy? But that's what it says here. Everything concerning our salvation has been given us in Christ Jesus. And his appearing secured for us what was already given to us before the ages began. And look here what Paul writes about his appearing and manifestation of this eternal purpose and grace. Again, Paul doesn't say everything here. There's only two things he's going to highlight here. Two things he's going to showcase for Timothy in regards to what Christ has done through his appearing and the manifestation of this eternal purpose of grace. Again, not a robust gospel explanation and exposition. That's not what Paul is trying to do here. Okay? But he mentions two things. Through his appearance and manifestation, he has abolished death and he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Why those two things? Why does he highlight these two things and only these two things? Well, we go back to Paul's aim at this 
exhortation in, in our lengthier passage here. It's to motivate Timothy to embrace suffering and to courageously take a stand for the gospel. Again, in a few short moments, weeks, months, Paul's going to face the executioner's blade. And he's there with no fear of death. Not one hair of his body has any fear of his life being taken. He is ready for the glories of the world to come. He is ready to receive everything that has been promised to him in Christ. He writes at the end of this letter in chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. This is what every martyr, that as we read their stories and recount their courageous stances for Jesus Christ in the face of death, this is what Paul had here. Why didn't he fear death? Because he knew death was the pathway to the glory. He knew death was entrance into the full promises laid up for him. In the salvation that Jesus Christ purchased for him. And it is to be our confidence as well. He says Christ abolished death. Death the enemy of all mankind. Introduced into God's good world. When our first parents sinned and rebelled. And death has reigned from the fall forward. It is the bane of human existence. It is the very wages that sin pays out. And mankind does everything to elude death. To escape death. But we can't, can we? I was studying not long ago articles from transhumanists. Who, you know, who believe that... One day through technological enhancements and, and uh, advancements and innovation, we'll be able to cast off our physical bodies and live forever in some augmented reality as we're uploaded to the cloud or into some avatar of sorts. What is the purpose of that? To try to cheat death. We can't do it. It'll never happen. It'll never happen. Death comes for all. Yet Paul says here, Christ abolished death. Well, in what a way? Well, we know we die physically. What he's done, though, is defang death. Remove its sting. Its tyrannical reign has been shattered by Christ's triumph over the grave. And though it hasn't been presently eliminated, we will experience physical death. If you are in Christ Jesus, you will never, ever experience eternal spiritual death. You'll never taste of the second death. As Jesus promises in Revelation, praise God. Praise God. Death becomes the pathway to glory for the believer. For the saint in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.35. That glorious gospel expounded there in that beautiful chapter. Paul, towards the end of it, asks this question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What is the answer? No one. 
Nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. He goes on to write in 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Through the gospel, life and immortality have come to light. This is what he's doing here. The gospel reveals the life and immortality that Christ offers through his sacrifice, through his righteousness. He promises life, an immortal life, an incorruptible life, eternal life. And that's what the gospel does. It shines this massive floodlight that death has been defeated. Death has been overcome through Christ's conquest of it. And that now Christ offers life and immortality to all who believe and receive him. That's why we continually exhort you to know God's word. To know the gospel. To rehearse these gospel truths to yourself day in and day out. There is not a day you and I do not need the truths of the gospel. That we don't need to appropriate the truths of the gospel. Apply the needs of the gospel. Preach the gospel to ourselves. The gospel contains all of the assurance you and I will ever need to live this life for the glory of God. No matter what comes our way, brothers and sisters. The gospel. Here's what Paul is trying to point out to Timothy. The gospel prepares you and I for the very worst that can happen to us in life. The very worst. Persecution? Yep. Opposition? Yes. Suffering? Yes. Tragedy? Yes. A bad doctor's diagnosis? Yes. Betrayals? Yeah. The gospel prepares us for the very worst life has to throw our way. So Paul tells Timothy, and by extension us... Shore yourself up in the gospel. Cling to it. Hold fast to it. Look to it as your motivation. Look to that grace that is ours and has been given us in Christ Jesus. But the gospel doesn't just prepare us for this life. It prepares us for the glory of the life to come. So we live with this blessed assurance, this blessed hope of what's ours on the other side of death's doorway. It's glory. It's glory. And even if we were to suffer cruelly for the sake of Christ, even if we were to face martyrdom, the gospel prepares us for the future glory promised to us. They may kill your body. They may take your life, but you will then be in the very presence of your Savior. So what do you have to fear? Nothing. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Share in suffering for Christ and his gospel if need be. Because he is worth it all, brothers and sisters. He's worth it all. Faithfully proclaim the gospel no matter the cost. Because you've been saved and you've been called to a holy life. God in Christ has graciously provided all things. For your salvation. And it's in Christ and Christ alone. That you have true life. 
and immortality in the next.